Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Nearly 38 million people are living with HIV around the globe. Yes, I said 38 million people. That's a lot of people. One bright spot is that new HIV infections have been reduced and AIDS-related mortality have declined. However, my friends, this fight is far, far from over and this disease continues to threaten all of us, every single one of us. This podcast will explore different perspectives in the fight against AIDS. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking to Morton Newberg. Mori has been practicing law in New York City since 1985 and has dealt with many cases involving discrimination and uh, inequality uh, related to HIV AIDS uh, cases. Mori, thanks for being here today and talking to us about such important issue. I'm very honored uh, to spend this time with you and uh, take your time for, you know, from your busy day and uh, talking to us uh, about you know, uh, HIV AIDS and potential litigations. You have been working on uh, HIV AIDS since the early days in the 1980s. And uh, please tell us who is Morton Newberg and uh, what, what it was, what is your involvement with uh, HIV and AIDS litigations? So in 1985, I went into my own practice. And around that time, and my practice became naturally um, substantially LGBT uh, as a gay man. And uh, I also became active in the Bar Association for Human Rights, which was our LGBT uh, Bar Association. And it tells you something about what it was like then just to be gay, that LGBT was not in the name. And uh, it took, it was actually started the organization in 1978 by uh, Professor Art Leonard, who much more than me has been in the forefront of uh, the civil rights for LGBT individuals. So um, coinciding with 1985, although it was discovered earlier and was sort of in the newspaper, uh, was in the newspaper, but I would say around the time I went into my own practice was the time when AIDS really struck the LGBT community and uh, particularly gay men for several reasons, including the matter in which the disease is transmitted. So it was a big issue for us as a bar association uh, because many people were already dying of HIV by that point. And uh, eventually through that association, uh, now called Legal, the LGBT Bar Association, uh, we set up a clinic at the Lesbian and Gay Community Center on 13th Street. Uh, and there were several individuals involved in that um, the clinic was for everyone or was for people involved in it was really for everyone but the, the nature of the disease was that it struck the gay community and, and actually drug users yeah. particularly hard so uh, 
Steve Gittleson and George Terzian, who were both gay attorneys, started in cooperation with the with the, the LGBT Bar Association, a free little legal clinic, and there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of work, and there were many people who did not have wills uh, and who couldn't afford to hire an attorney. That legal clinic was very busy. And the organization has grown exponentially, and the legal con uh, clinic continues in a much bigger form. Uh, and uh, at the same time in my own practice, you had men mainly in their early 30s because the disease had, for the most part, a 10-year incubation period, suddenly getting sick. And it was a deadly disease. Uh, I, I think the most I know of anyone who developed AIDS that survived was two years. Wow. So uh, people were dying. And I, I would say a substantial part of my practice was uh, I had a partner, he was dealing more with the estate side of it at the time, but a substantial proportion of the practice was people dying of AIDS. And uh, at that time, it, it, I don't think it's still that easy to be gay or to come out as LGBT. It's certainly easier but it's still hard to be different. But if you grew up when I did, it was not socially accepted. I had the advantages of growing up in New York, uh, being from a family that could afford to send me to college, and also a very accepting family. So I didn't go through that issue that I was going to be ostracized by my family, but I felt ostracized internally. And I really didn't come out until after law school. And so that's, uh, I would say, in the early 80s. And I, I, I sort of spent a lot of time just denying it, just not, not having relationships. And uh, <laughs> I, I actually realized that I would probably kill myself if I didn't oh my gosh, accept this. I mean, that sounds more dramatic yeah. than, it's not that I tried to kill myself, yeah. but I realized uh, I was somewhat fortunate by then that at least Stonewall had occurred. And so there was a community, but if you grow up middle class in Forest Hills, uh, and really any place. It's very hard to be different. So really, I have a couple of years where I'm sort of, you know, working with being gay. And I also was an only child with a single parent. So I had a lot of issues around relationships and all that. And then so personally, not only did I have what was going on in my practice, but all of a sudden, gay sex is potentially deadly and even worse because of the incubation period as I uh, 
when this first started, they didn't even know what caused yeah. it. So you, you basically, everyone was in fear of dying. You would see people, and then the next time you would see them, they were obviously sick. And you would go to visit people in the hospital, and the door would open on another floor, wow. and you would see someone you knew. And so it was just all around. And at the time, we had a president who didn't want to say the word. Yeah. And there was an incredible amount of discrimination because it was largely a disease of gay men at the time and drug users. Yes. So, so you have that whole sort of uh, mix in there. And I, I would say my thir 30s were spent in that epidemic. Uh, I've had three law partners who died of AIDS. I lost my best friend. And it, it was terrifying. And it also... From a litigation perspective, what, what was your most memorable case and why? Well, I, I inherited as an attorney a case from a partner of mine named Jay Lipner, who was very active in LGBT issues and AIDS awareness. And it was a doctor, Peter Seitzman, who lived in a building on Riverside Drive with his partner, Joseph Manola. And he entered into a contract with Hudson River Associates to buy an apartment on the ground floor of the building, which ironically I live across the street from now, uh, for a medical office. And that required a change in the certificate of occupancy, which is not that big a deal from residential to a medical office. It's perfectly permitted, and there are lots of medical offices on the ground floors of apartment buildings. Uh, what happened was that when the sponsor, this was a co-op conversion, when the sponsor realized that he had a substantial LGBT practice, uh, the sponsor, and there was one individual in particular whose name I don't remember, who was really the head, uh, he refused to take the steps necessary to get the certificate of occupancy, which only the sponsor could do as the owner of a building. And that's the nature of a co-op. So he refused to do it and, in effect, voided the contract. So Peter sued. And my partner brought an order to show cause, which... Ironically, an order to show cause is to prevent a sale, stay the proceedings, and have a prelim preliminary finding of discrimination. So it's a way of keeping the status quo and also hopefully, frankly, forcing the defendant to act properly, but rule against Peter and Joe. So then it went into the full litigation phase. Uh, it also went up on appeal. And I think actually on appeal, 
uh, it was sent back down. I, I wasn't really that. I was not involved in that portion of it, but that's my recollection. So anyway, it went back down for a trial, uh, which is basically what happens when you don't get an Orchestra Clause anyway. But uh, so my partner Jay. Uh, developed AIDS. He had, I don't I think he had pneumocystis, which was one. There was a line you crossed from being HIV positive to, to developing AIDS. one of these opportunistic infections that constituted AIDS, which was basically when your T cells dropped low enough that your body couldn't fight them off. And they were very particular. The first way AIDS was discovered was Carposi's sarcoma, which normally occurred in elderly Eastern European men. Uh, but be, these were all diseases of the brain, and th those were the two primary, Corposi sarcoma and pneumocystis. And uh, so when that happened, he retired from the practice. And he lived about another two years, but he retired from the practice, so I inherited the case. So, uh, how long did this case went on? For? This case went on for years, and it was. If anyone's ever been involved in litigation, particularly when a litigation is so personal, we're not talking about a business litigation, which can be bad enough depending on your size. If you're a small business, it could also be very personal. Um, but you're also talking discrimination. You're talking about an LGBT doctor and his partner. You're talking about a doctor who was in the forefront of the medical fight against AIDS on the ground level of treating patients at a time when there was, well, at first, nothing. So it, it went on for years. Anyway, in 1989, we finally went to trial. We had the same judge, not only a young person dealing with this whole crisis, but dealing with this very difficult litigation that, of course, was very personal to me, too, as a gay man. Uh, I don't remember how long the trial went on, but uh, there were very few people who would come out publicly in f recognizing HIV, recognizing AIDS. It was, even though it was all around and there were many people who were supportive, uh, in terms of the society, we had a president who didn't recognize it. We had a medical system that wasn't prepared to deal with it. And uh, my expert witness was Dr. Matilde Krim, who we could talk about later, but she was in the forefront, which she did not have to be. She was a scientist. And she was one of those rare people who she was already involved in cancer treatment, and the first treatment for HIV was interferon. And she was a cancer specialist at Sloan Kettering. And so 
she became very involved and she spoke out. And her husband was uh, Arthur Krim, who was an attorney. And he was very prominent in the movie business. I think he had at Paramount or... Anyway, she not only had a lot of resources, but she was very intelligent, very, uh, very broad-minded. And she really pushed HIV awareness into the press, into society, the medical treatment, the way people were dealt with, this discrimination. She, fe- she with uh, her husband and another doctor, I think, Sonnabend, founded a, an organization that eventually became Ampfor. Uh, with Elizabeth Taylor, who was one of the few other prominent people who actually put, in the United States, a face to the disease, a face to the discrimination. And uh, so after, I don't know how long the jury trial lasted, about two weeks, with Dr. Krim as one of the witnesses, uh, it doesn't get any better than that from an expert witness named Matilda Krim. This is uh, very impressive. Right. And uh, how helpful it, was she to you? She was. If you're an intelligent person in New York who read the newspaper in the country, everyone knew who she was. Uh, <laughs> I'm. When I take on a case, it becomes very personal, and I can be very dogged. And I basically pursued her, and she was lovely enough to come. I basically had her on call. Uh, I, it, 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 she was a very busy person. It was not easy to convince her. I had to explain everything. I mean, she was lovely. She was just stretched thin, but she did come and she did testify and it made a huge impact. And the result of that case, which was eventually settled, uh, was that, uh, was a finding that discrimination under the human rights law, and a whole other fight was having AIDS classified as a disability because discrimination has certain categories, one of which was disability. But there was a huge fight over AIDS being a disability because it meant government benefits and it meant you could sue. So that was another. So this health crisis revolutionized in terms of living wills, healthcare proxies, designation documents, designation of disability. It turned the law it, it progressed the law exponentially. That's what came out of it legally. And what came out of this particular case was that um, under the human rights law, since AIDS was a disability, not only could you receive compensatory damages, which are based on an actual calculation evidence of what you suffered, but was groundbreak- what was groundbreaking about this case was you could also receive punitive damages. And punitive damages do not relate to the harm you as an individual received, uh, uh, suffered, 
but it relates to the harm to society. It's something egregious, it's something willful, it's something reckless, and it's not tied to your particular damages. It's meant to be a deterrent and the damage to society. So that was a big deal. And uh, we owe that to Peter and Joe. The litigation is extremely costly, emotionally very draining. At the same time that you're handling, uh, and Joe was also a doctor, but a psychiatrist, Peter was an internist, that you're also dealing with all these individuals who are dying in their 30s. And of course, I mean, Dr. Krim is remembered for many other things, but she made a big difference in that case. And these were really people who, Amphar, put a face on the disease. It's easy to discriminate if you don't have a face to it. We're sort of ironically going through that again now. So from it, your perspective, is AIDS, discrimination, and inequality is still an issue today? Yes, because, uh, I mean, I deal with a particular community of people who are, you know, probably professionals in New York City, but uh, there is no reason that age AIDS should exist as a disease. It, uh, if you have it, it can be treated. But in terms of new cases, or it's not being treated, uh, they don't have a vaccine yet, so it's not quite like polio should be. But no one should get to the point of developing AIDS because it's a progressive disease over a 10-year period. And there is medication that can reduce the virus to being, I'm not a scientist, but virtually non-existent in your bloodstream. So the reality is in the gay community that has resources, that is privileged, it does not exist as a disease. But there are many communities in New York City, in the country, and certainly worldwide, where people do not have access to that level of medical care. The drugs are very expensive. Uh, you have to have access to them. And uh, whereas on a certain level in the world I deal in and in my practice, you will occasionally have people who eventually stop tolerating the drugs and die of it. Or <laughs> I did have an instance where someone my age just ignored the obvious symptoms like thrush that was what happened and somehow went to a doctor who didn't think i guess he went to who didn't think that thrush required an hiv test and so three years ago he developed full-blown aids which is absurd so medical care is crucial and people being aware of the disease is crucial and we're talking about this happening to someone in Westchester County. Wow, like three years ago, you mean? Yes. It's still happening. So today. that, first of all, requires a substantial level of self-denial as a person. Because if you live through that period, thrush, KS, and pneumocystis 
I mean, my daughter developed thrushes, two-year-old, and uh, I, I mean, she it, it wasn't related to that, but she was adopted, and I I immediately had her tested. So, but then you go to a doctor. He had a recurrence of thrush, and then he developed lymphoma, which is another issue with HIV. So you're talking in the wealthiest country in the world, in the wealthiest community, someone actually died of non-treated HIV and AIDS, let alone poor people. And personally, you have to feel that that level of self-denial, I can't speak for the person. It's, it's frustrating because it, it, today you don't have to die of this. Yes, it was anymore. extremely frustrating. But it also, I think, speaks to the inbred discrimination about being LGBT, which still exists, and the discrimination about HIV and AIDS, and which still exists in communities in New York, uh, exists, I mean, New York is a bubble. <laughs> and let alone in impoverished communities in our country, let alone in impoverished communities internationally. But this is a treatable disease that is now preventable. So the idea that there are so many new cases of which I didn't really realize until we were talking about this uh, is, well, it speaks to the inequality and discrimination that we live with internationally in this country, even in this city, and to discrimination and shame about being LGBT and about, or obviously at this point, uh, it affects a lot of straight people. So they may not be grappling with that, but they are grappling with having this disease, which still to this day has a specter. And of course, we're now living in a country where there is an uptick in discrimination, an uptick in inequality, and that has a global impact. Absolutely. Mari, how was it like as a gay man to live through and survive the AIDS crisis? Well, first of all, it's to feel blessed because I carry with me every day all the people I knew, my law partners, my best friend, my friends who died of it, and the suffering was incomprehensible. And the day-to-day -day reality was incomprehensible. And it, I wasn't even sick, but it, it overwhelmed my life, actually. Um, Do you want to stop? No, but 
and it was very overwhelming and painful. There's not a day that I don't think about it, that I don't feel blessed, that I don't feel lucky. There's no reason other than maybe genetics or luck that I did not die. So it's a roulette wheel and it's inexplicable and it's something I will always carry with me. And uh, and the experiences of discrimination and disease, uh, <laughs> to the extent what it pushed LGBT issues forward. It forced the LGBT community to coalesce. And to push the law forward. And to push medicine forward. An incalculable I can almost, price was paid for that by the people who died and what it was like to experience that. And for me as a gay man now, having lived through that, uh, now that there is actually a drug that prevents your being infected, what I see is an uptick in sexually transmitted diseases. I see people who think it can never happen again, who take the drug and don't use condoms. I see intelligent people where I will say, and not that I'm special, but I do feel like I'm often a lone voice. I go to presentations about that drug. They don't even mention using condoms. Uh, there is a level of denial that is incomprehensible. I have intelligent people tell me, well, now they'll develop a fast cure because medicine has allegedly progressed or it'll never happen again. Or uh, I don't know, they don't care or I don't want to use a condom because it feels different. And, and I think what's somehow lacking now and I don't quite know why, because we live in an age when almost everything is available on YouTube. And there have been some movies about people dying. And maybe it's human psychology, but it's a very abstract concept to a lot of people. And it leads to a level of denial that um, I had one instance where they were having a presentation on this drug. And I said, well, what about, why aren't you telling people about using condoms? I, I felt like I was going to get thrown out of the meeting. <laughs> uh, I felt a lot of hostility. And the response I got was, was, we want to encourage people to take the drug. And we can't do that if we don't tell them to use condoms because they won't take it. 
which that's an educational issue. <laughs> you, people, people think they take the drug, they, go, they have to go to the doctor at least in you know, the United States. Every three months they get tested for all sorts of STDs and that somehow they're immune. I, I mean, AIDS was a plague. We hadn't had anything in what we would consider the modern times like that. But we live in a world where everyone flies, we're in a global community, things pass quickly. You're not going on a steamship to Europe and only wealthy people are going. Everyone's flying, everyone's, we're one community of people. And the idea that we're not going to have another plague is not scientifically reasonable. How do you uh, utilize all this experience that you have, you know, having lived throughout this and learned a lot and uh, being a parent today? How do you talk to your kids about HIV, AIDS, prevention? <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, I, I tell them to use condoms. Uh, they went to a school that was very progressive in terms of that kind of education. Uh, I mean, frankly, at least for me, well, I, You know, condoms also prevent <laughs> the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. They pre prevent pregnancies. So it's part of a larger discussion. It's interesting because, uh, and I'm very open with my kids, uh, you know my kids, and uh, preparing for all this, this podcast, I realize I speak to them about everything, but I never sat down with them. I had a uh, thorough conversation about HIV and AIDS and prevention. We do talk about prevention, but we never specifically talk about this topic. And I don't know why, because it impacted my family as well. I lost uh, a few cousins back in 1988 and 1992 of diseases, so. Well, <laughs> I have the same issue, which your question actually made me sort of realized. All of this, the, the new cases of AIDS, all the hate, it's all from turning people into the other and not recognizing that it could be you. And these are, these are symptoms of the inequality and the discrimination and, and the denial. Maury, thank you so much. What a emotional discussion, but I think an important one and uh, appreciate your time here today. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you.